And we're back. George Norrie with you. Welcome back to more Open Lines. And let's go to Mitchell in San Diego, California. Mitchell, thanks for holding so long. Would you like to talk about the Middle East, if I may? Okay, sir. Go ahead. Um, Tom, you had an earlier caller said that Israel being right there is not a good idea. And I think the reason that the world gave them Israel was because we didn't have the guts as a world to apologize for the Holocaust. To this day, that's never been done. And if you were a Jew, and that happened to your people, that would take precedence over everything you did. I'd be, I'd be outraged if it happened to my people. I'd be outraged. Yeah, you, you would make sure that that never happened to, to your people again. You would sew up the media, the banks, the everything, which they have done. And I think as an alternative, because what, what Netanyahu's doing, he's setting the stage up for an equal and opposite reaction. He's going to get nuked because what he's doing to Gaza today, it's going to be the natural result of what he's doing. And it's going to force them to, to have to leave. But I have a better idea. What's that? Well, first of all, Netanyahu says that he's going to stop the bombing after the hostages are released. Does anyone believe that? That's when the bombing's going to really start. So he has no credibility, and uh, it sounds like you know, you're, you're not you're not you're, you're not a Netanyahu fan. It sounds like. Well, I, I think that uh, a separation of church and state is being violated with our support of Israel, and I think by supporting Israel, we are alienating all the Islamic world against us, just the way we alienated Japan, Korea, and Vietnam in those wars. And I think someone's pulling our strings in that respect. In fact, the Rosenbergs gave the Soviets our secrets while we were giving them Israel. And if you were a Jew, you would notice that the Soviets went into Hitler's bunker and killed him, and while the Americans harbored Nazis after the war. So we have a mess on our hands here. And the best thing I've read on the subject, if I may give your readers a tip, is found in the editorial section of LennonMurderTruth.com. Well, I'm not so sure about that, but I've got to tell you this. Israel was attacked on October 7th, and it never should have happened at all. If there are things that needed to be negotiated, it should have happened through the United Nations. Somebody should have brought some issues forward. But to kill innocent people, victims, babies putting them in ovens. I don't have to go through a litany of things that we know about. It's uncalled for. It really is. So I think you're in the minority there, Mitch. Bill in Los Angeles, take it away. Hey, Billy. Hey, George. How are you doing? Good. How have you been? Okay. By the way, I think that that, that previous caller, uh, he sure sounds like that guy who's been hoaxing your show off and on the last couple of years. I, I think that's the same guy. He might be. He might be. Yeah. He said, well, this John Lennon nonsense is the same guy. But uh, I was, I was going to mention a couple of uh, war, war movies from Hollywood that kind of intersected with my own life in an indirect way. Do you remember a movie called Pride of the Marines from 1945? Uh, I sure Garfield? do. Yep, a classic. Yeah, and it's, it's a, one of the few Hollywood movies that's actually true to, to reality. And uh, he, you may remember he lost his eyesight on Guadalcanal, while he and his buddy mowed down 500 Japanese attackers during the night, and they they 
triumphed. In, in the morning, he was blind. His buddy had lost, I think, his hands, and the, his he held the machine gun while his while his buddy spotted for him, and they they won that battle against the Japanese. And uh, it's it's a great story about the the VA. And the the part that intersected with my life was that there's a nurse. Her last name was uh, Pfeiffer, who inspired the John Garfield character, the real life character, to overcome his his uh, depression. And that woman was the the mother of my childhood best friend. Small world, Bill. Yeah, and uh, uh, actually, that that guy went to Columbia J School uh, the year before I did, and uh, because of him, I I went there too. And then uh, the other movie, uh, I'm sure you remember uh, Clint Eastwood's Heartbreak Ridge. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and don't get me wrong, I'm a diehard Clint Eastwood fan. And by the way, he's you may know he's a Korean War vet. And uh, kudos to him. You know, I, he's, he's my hero. Yep. But <laughs> that movie was kind of a turkey in a number of ways. I was assigned as a reporter for the Orange County Register in 1986 to watch that with a, a bunch of real-life combat veterans from Korea and World War II, including a Medal of Honor winner, uh, retired Marine Colonel William Barber. That name may sound familiar to some of your Orange County uh, listeners. And I think he, he died a few years ago. But I watched that movie with him and a couple other guys. And you should have heard these guys take that movie apart, starting with the, the, the fact that, that Heartbreak Ridge was supposed to be a Marine battle, but in fact it was an Army <laughs> battle in Korea. <laughs> like almost everything about that movie, according to these guys, and if you do the research, was wrong, you know, in, including everybody's favorite you know, profanity-laced lines by Eastwood. They, these guys said they, nobody talked to anybody that, like that. The, the gunnery sergeants didn't use that kind of language with the enlisted men. And they didn't pick fights with people. And uh, it, it, they, they said this, it was just totally Hollywood. But uh, it was just interesting watching that movie with four guys who were actually you know, combat veterans. Absolutely. Hollywood, by the way, has settled the SAG after strike. That means more and more TV shows and movies get going again. It's about time. Mark in Wisconsin, take it away. Hi, Mark. Hi, George. How you doing? Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, and happy uh, Veterans Day to you. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to get back to something I heard Daniel say about uh, reinstituting a draft. Okay. I think that would be a really good thing to do for these kids in the colleges that don't know nothing and stick them in the army, let them do a little battle and see what their real world is like. They're obviously oblivious of what is really going on. Well, the, the draft during Vietnam created such tension with people. I'm not sure as long as we can get enough people on the volunteer end of this, we don't need a draft. Now, if that were changing, if we couldn't get enough volunteers in, then we'd have to put in a draft to be that. But, uh, gosh, I remember during the Vietnam days, the draft was horrible. And uh, my draft number was 20, which meant I was going to Vietnam, so I went and got my physical. And I had a slight heart murmur when I was a kid. Didn't really affect me, but I had it. And they spotted it. And they said, you're not eligible to go in the military. And I went, what? I was still in my last year of college, but I went through the draft process. And I was upset, but I was also kind of fortunate at the same time. I didn't want to go to Vietnam. 
wasn't as brave as some of the other people that did go. And uh, I got out. And then years later, I got a direct commission to go into the Navy. And they checked the heart murmur, and they said, no, it's fine. You're you're okay. And uh, in I went. But uh, I'm not so sure, Mark, a draft would work these days. I mean, if we have... Mark, let me ask you this. If we have a volunteer army, why do we need a draft? Well, maybe it's straighten up the ideas of some of these younger kids that just don't know what the world is like. Well, I don't know if a draft would do that or not or make them more angrier. It's a very strange situation. Let's go next to Brother Don in Kent, Ohio. Hey, Donald, welcome to the show. Hey, God bless you, George, and happy Sabbath. You know, I want to thank you for your service and all your veterans for the sacrifices that they've made. Thank you. understand about Israel. God gave that land to them. It doesn't matter if he gave it to them yesterday. The only thing the Palestinians should ask is, number one, what do you accept for conversion and how much is the rent structure? (laughs) Because the land belongs to them. The Dome of the Rock was built in the 7th century on top of the second Jewish temple. The second Jewish temple was built on top of the first Jewish temple, which goes back to about the 10th century B.C. This land has been in constant uh, Hebrew use until they were scattered, of course, by uh, Titus' army, the Roman army in uh, 70 A.D. with the destruction of the temple. So, you know, people have to put their perspectives in order. It's God's willingness to give that land to keep for eternity. Well, well said, my friend, and uh, it's an issue that has not been solved in thousands of years, has it? No, and you got to remember, the Israel is a tiny country surrounded by over 800 million uh, radical Muslims. It's the only country in the history of the world that kept the true Bible Sabbath. That's Sunday, um, I'm sorry, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, the time that we're in right now. So, uh, God made a promise to those folks that they keep the commandments. I mean, it's the fourth commandment. As Catholics, you know, we, it's called the, the third commandment because we had to get rid of the second commandment dealing with images. But so they moved everything up and split the tenth into two. So, you know, a, a lot of problems with compromising with the Vatican and that. But the bottom line is, is that God doesn't want us to fight. He told us that we're going to be applying the plowshares and our swords. Uh, will be converted. So we're going to pound our swords and spears into plowshares. We're going to till the land. Everybody's going to live in peace when he returns. It's not going to be too far away. Well, I would wish we would go into peace because these wars are crazy. Let's go to first-time caller, Cy. Happens to be in Madison, Mississippi. Hello, Cy. Welcome to the program. Uh, Hey, George. Thank you so much for taking my phone call. My pleasure. Um, I've been listening for a long time, and uh, as you said earlier, first-time caller. Uh, I'm myself a veteran, but I wanted to say happy Veterans Day to you and the rest of the veterans listening. And you right too. Now. Thank you. Uh, I had an interesting story for you. Uh, at least a friend of mine told me it was an interesting story okay. a few days ago. Let's see what it's like. Well, I was uh, actually a part of a uh, operation called Noble Eagle uh, in Washington, D.C., right after September 11th. Uh, <clears throat> and in 2012, in June, um, when I was active duty, um, I was a Stinger missile operator, and uh, some of your listeners may not know this, but after 2011, uh, for 
I think three to five years, possibly, Operation Noble Eagle. Uh, we had stations all over D.C. with Stinger missiles, uh, just in case. Uh, just in case, that's right. Attack. Um, so uh, this has happened a few times since then. It's been many, many years ago, but this is the first time it happened uh, after 9-11, a, a civilian aircraft flying into uh, what you would, I guess, refer to as a no-fly zone over D.C., um, I was actually the team chief uh, for the Stinger missile team, me and my gunner, and we were on the rooftop of what is known as the executive building, uh, roughly 150 yards from the White House itself uh, on the night this happened. Um, now, I wouldn't say this has been covered up. It hasn't, but it was kind of a botched deal because when Noble Eagle first started out, it was a, it was a fool's errand almost. Uh, the three tiers of defense that we had, for D.C. were S-16s, uh, and then after that, Black Hawk helicopters, and the very last tier were Stinger missiles, uh, which what we did. Um, and on this night in July, you can look this up if you'd like, uh, in 2012, a Cessna plane, um, the pilot had fallen asleep, I believe, oh. I was told, uh, in the middle of the night, and uh, was on a beeline straight for the White House, uh, and our position being right next to the White House. Roughly, we came 12 to 13 seconds from being given the command to actually fire the Stinger missile on this civilian plane. And just before that, this guy apparently woke up and uh, realized what was going on. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what he was looking at when he woke up? He was at. Well, that was the thing: is that he was an assessment plane, the the first tier defense. Uh, and, of course, I, I can say this now because I've been a civilian for so long. My top-secret clearance is not even uh, an issue. F-16 planes were the first tier of defense but to buzz, but this airplane. But, of course, he's he's moving such a slow pace in the F-16, he doesn't even know they've been there. The Blackhawks then buzzed him. Uh, they were not able to wake him up. And here's the – I wouldn't call it – I call it funny now because I'm, I'm you know, 46 and well out of military years. But just before – we were getting the actual radio signal to say, hey, we're about to do something here. The steam from the manholes there in downtown Washington, D.C. started being released. A Stinger missile is heat sinking. So as I'm standing there on the rooftop of a building next to the White House, knowing that in the next minute to two minutes, I'm about to give my gunner the command to fire Stinger missile at this unknown civilian airplane, all of a sudden the steam starts rising up, and I'm thinking to myself, we're about to fire a heat-sinking missile in downtown Washington, D.C., and just literally 12 seconds before I'm about to give the command, they called off because the guy waited. Oh, that could have gone into the street system. Oh, yeah, could have gone anywhere. Well, we're right next to the White House, but the, the uh, first family had actually been uh, evacuated. I actually I watched uh, George Bush Jr. play uh, soccer with his Cocker Spaniel in the backyard of the White House many times. But this is a story that a lot of people don't know about. And a friend of mine that I promised I would call and tell you all about this uh, said that, man, this is just a, a, a cool story. And I thought, you know, it, it is in a way that it, it wasn't a big deal to me. But after the years have gone by, they've. Not saying, like I said, they, they haven't covered it up, but it was it was a very flawed system. Since then, they've corrected it, but it was a very small, minute spec. And my friend passed away two weeks ago, and I gave him my word that I would actually call into you at some point and uh, tell you about this story. And uh, it's a very, you know, it's, it's not an important story. It's an interesting story, I guess, to some folks. Um, that is fascinating. I thank God the guy woke up, Cy. 
Yeah, and, and, and the funny thing is is that they didn't even give him a ticket. I thought at least he would get some sort of a, a citation or something for flying to the White House <laughs> and fall asleep. But he, he apparently he got off scot-free, and uh, years and years after that, I'm, I'm, I'm 45 now. Um, I'm, I was active from 97 uh, to 2004, but I actually was deployed uh, with the National Guard unit uh, in 2012 to D.C. for the Operation Noble Eagle. But while I was there, it uh, it was actually and and the reason I second reason I called was to tell you that I don't think they do that anymore. The Stinger missile uh, uh, locations around D.C., but I got a chance to go to the other locations, and one was by the Arlington uh, National Cemetery. There are five locations in total, but uh, standing there over the tombstones there in Arlington. Um, was really uh, stirring for me on a personal note, but I thought I might just call in and just let you know because I gave my buddy his gave my buddy his my word that I would do that. Just give you the interesting story that we came roughly 15 seconds from me being on CNN explaining as to why I shot a Stinger missile uh, at the White House in the middle of the night, uh, and thankfully I didn't have to do that. So, but uh, very close call. A lot of people may not know about that story. They can research if they want to, but it was a uh, you know, it's happened a few times since then, I think. Indeed. Thank you, Si. I appreciate it. Great story, by the way. Joe, Monterey, California. A couple minutes here. Joseph, go ahead. Well, um, happy Veterans Day. Thank you, sir. And yesterday was the Marine Corps anniversary. 248 years old. Well, it was also my birthday, too. But you're not 248, or are you? Uh, that would be a couple of lifetimes. <laughs> Indeed. What's up? Um. I I just I was going to talk about uh, two interventions, but I'm only going to say one because I wanted to bring up a little uh, little something that people don't think about. The Greys are telepathic, and in Roswell, that crash they laid in the field for a long, long time. The next day, I believe. How come they didn't come and get them? They knew they were there. They're telepathic, and if they had trouble with their ship. They would have sent out a, 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 an SOS of some kind. Well, you would have thought that they came from a mothership that was going around the planet, don't you? Well, there's so many of them that uh, they would have had no problem in finding them and rescuing them. Well, that's true, but uh, who knows why they waited so long? I think they gave us that technology. And the beans, too, the bodies? Yes. Well, that's an interesting take on all of that. Mm-hmm. Very interesting indeed. All right, Joe, thanks. We're going to come back in a moment. Did you know that there are some people who literally fake their deaths for all kinds of reasons? In a moment, we're going to be talking with an individual about why people fake their deaths. So stand by for that and much more on Coast to Coast AM. Death is part of life. People die every day. But why in the world do people fake their own deaths? Good morning, Elizabeth. Hi, George. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. We're keeping you up late. You're on the East Coast, aren't you? (laughs) Sure am. Middle of the night over here. But I've had plenty of coffee, and I'm really excited to talk pseudoside. What an amazing (laughs) book and subject. (laughs) Oh, my God. How did you you get involved in even writing about this? Well, there's the short story and the long story, and I'll give you the thumbnail on each. So the short story is that 
I, um, in 2012, wrote a profile of a man named Frank Ahern, who at the time worked here in New York. And Frank is a quote-unquote privacy consultant. So he is a person who helps people disappear, both physically and digitally. Uh, a lot of people bring up that character on Breaking Bad, uh-huh. Walter White in the last season. He's kind of the real-life version of that, although he claims not to do anything illegal. You can really actually vaporize without resorting to illegal means. So, you know, one of the questions that I kept asking Frank is, you know, well, why would you disappear instead of fake your death if your problems were really that grave, pardon the pun, Um you know, because faking your death really means um, staging some kind of accident or hoax to make it appear that you have perished, that that's the end, that's the period, punctuation point on your story. Whereas disappearing means, you know, it's kind of your classic case of dad goes out for cigarettes one day and never comes back. So it's just more open-ended. So my question to Frank was always like, well, why wouldn't you fake your death? And what he kept telling me over and over again was that it's actually a lot easier to get yourself caught if you fake your death instead of disappearing. There's more for investigators to look into, into the circumstances surrounding your death, especially if you were in some hot water. You know, usually it's uh, legally, financially, or maritally Mm -hmm. around the time of your fake death. The way I got to Frank in the first place is because I, like many Americans, have a ton of student loan debt from both my undergraduate and graduate degrees. And I was having dinner with a friend one night when I was in graduate school, and I'd taken out all these loans so foolishly, all my own fault. And I was saying, oh, my gosh, Matt, what am I going to do after graduation when I have to start paying these back? I think I need to just find a country with a really nice beach and no extradition policy and just (laughs) flip through the cracks. Any fantasy probably a lot of us have had at one point or another. And my friend said very offhandedly, meaning nothing of it, he said, oh, or you could fake your own death. And I was like, that's such a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? So I just became very fascinated with the whole concept of how you would do it pragmatically. Of You know, I'd always heard about death hoaxes like Elvis and Tupac. And mm-hmm. I just became totally enraptured with the idea, especially once I met characters like Frank and real people out in the world who, who deal in disappearance and suicide. Were you serious about disappearing? I don't think I was. I mean, I think that I had, it was really more of the fantasy that was very appealing. You know, I always joke that if I'd actually faked my death, my mom would kill me. So I'd be dead right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could ever go through And you'd, with you'd it. end up um, missing the ones you cared about, I think, eventually. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the real reason why so many people end up getting caught you know, isn't because they get their image captured on closed-circuit TV somewhere, Um, and it isn't really a function of the kind of omnipresent surveillance and technology of the world we live in today. It's really because people can't cut ties with their past lives. It's because they can't stop talking to mom, um, you know, on her birthday or when they miss her. So, the it's really kind of a human nature problem why people have have a real hard time staying dead when they're supposed to be (laughs) how often elizabeth does this happen where people actually try to disappear yeah it's such a good question and it's a really tough one to answer so excuse me in the case of um fake deaths for life insurance purposes which is a main 
factor of people who fake their deaths usually. They're trying to cash out on that life insurance policy and, you know, get rich and die, die trying, as it were. Um, so I spoke with um, the Coalition of uh, Insurance Fraud Investigators, and these are people who monitor all insurance fraud. Mm-hmm. So not just life insurance, but Medicaid fraud, Everything. you know, yeah. any kind of fraud you could commit. And they said that just life insurance fraud is less than 1% of what they see on an annual basis. And speaking to fraud investigators, you know, the guys who are kind of like the real-life Indiana Joneses, when there's a fishy case that comes in from some far-flung country, they get on the plane and, you know, traits out to the village in Mongolia, and they'll dig up empty coffins sometimes. They have pretty amazing jobs. They're investigating usually several dozen of these a year, but these are only really high-sticker-priced frauds you know, in the in the realm of the millions that they're investigating because it's a kind of a cost-benefit analysis for the company. They're not going to be paying these guys thousands of dollars a day right. unless the policy is very high. So the kind of inherent paradox with trying to get a good number on death fraud is that people who do it successfully are simply presumed dead. We don't know. We only hear about the um, cases that go awry. So with those... Just at least American cases, it's around a couple hundred a year. And do they disappear? Are there fake bodies with the teeth oh, pulled gosh. out? What what happens? <laughs> I mean, you name it. It's pretty amazing. So one of the ways in which uh, people often attempt to commit life insurance fraud, particularly, again, this all kind of goes to your motives of why you're trying to... Sure. And the benefactor so, in these cases, Elizabeth, would be whom? The guy's wife or some girlfriend or what? Indeed. Yes, exactly. So it's typically, um, you know, a wife, uh, a child, um, usually someone you're blood related to. Are they in on the um, scam? Yes, they have to be. Unfortunately, you can't collect your own life insurance policy. So that's one of the kind of tricky parts is you need a trusted co-conspirator. And as a lot of the fraud investigators told me, you know, they will always first thing, like go to the person who claims the money and start interviewing them. And a lot of people break pretty quickly. Uh. <laughs> so you've got to really know who you're getting, who you're He's getting. He's hiding under with. the treehouse. I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Um, but to answer your first question, so for life insurance fraud purposes, people will get very theatrical. And typically, these kinds of cases are occur overseas in countries where there's a very robust culture of um, of fraud. So one place um, that I visited for the book and that the investigators told me again and again where they see cases coming from right now is the Philippines. So your average fraudster will go to the Philippines, and you can get so theatrical with your fake death over there. You can purchase a body and a morgue like it, it can be anything from a black market morgue well they will pick up you know dead derelicts off the street and keep them on ice for these purposes or you can go into a municipal morgue where they're just like very overtaxed and say oh it's uncle marco we oh finally found gosh. him yeah it's pretty grim stuff and they take that body and immediately cremate it and then they will host fake funerals where they will hire you know locals pay them a few bucks 
to weep over the casket. Wow. What about the death certificate? Will you get a phony death oh, certificate? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a big part. So most of the best frauds really don't take place with, you know, these very theatrical kind of scenarios. Because then what they'll do is videotape the funeral and provide all this photo evidence to the life insurance company. But it's really about the documents. There are a lot of documents that go into a death. When you think about it, you have the death certificate. If it was a grisly accident, there's an autopsy report. There's a doctor's, um, you know, testimony, witness testimony, police reports. So making sure that, you know, and I don't recommend this by any means, but (laughs) uh, really looking at those documents and getting high-quality documents is really how most death frauds are carried out. Give us an example uh, of a story of an individual who tried this and, let's say, succeeded, and then maybe one where they got caught. Well, the problem is, for, again, for my book, I talked to people, all who, some people who did fake their deaths, but they all got caught. They all got I caught. I was talking to them. I unfortunately have not found that holy grail person yet of someone who's presumed dead and wants to talk to me. But, hey, Coast to Coast listeners, if you're out there, they, it, It's right. When we go to calls story. next hour, they might <laughs> pop up for you. That would be great. Um, so one of my favorite stories um, comes out of the U.K., and it's about a man uh, named John Darwin, who, in his own words, he called himself Mr. Boring. He was married to his wife, Anne, at the time, and he was a school teacher. At the time, he was a corrections officer. And he and Anne had gotten themselves into some pretty steep real estate debt. They had taken out mortgages on a lot of different properties um, and were having trouble paying the notes. They had tenants that weren't paying the rent on time. Um, So they, in John's own words, he realized at a certain point that he was really in over his head and he was worth more dead than alive. So his plan was to cash in on these life insurance policies and um, pensions that he had. So with the help of his wife, he staged his drowning in a kayaking accident on the North Sea uh, right in front of his home in Seton, Carew, England, paddled out. Um, he kind of crash landed a little bit down the beach. His wife, Anne, picked him up in the car, drove him to the train station where he then took a train to the west coast of England, camped out on the beach for several months. He grew very gaunt and thin and grew this long beard and took on this elaborate disguise. He then actually returned to his own home, they had this amazing Victorian house um, where they rented out half of it um, to uh, renters, and they lived in the other half. So he um, took on the name Carl Fennick, and as Carl Fennick, he posed as a, as a renter oh and had gosh. his own room next door. And the houses were connected through a series of, of stairs. So at night, he would just take these stairs and, you know, go go to bed with his wife and in the morning, go back as Carl Fennick. So they had two adult sons that thought he was dead the whole time. They were not in on this plan. So in the time that John was presumed dead, he managed to obtain uh, an authentic U.K. passport and the name of a person called John Jones, who was born around the same time as him but died in childhood. And with his passport and with Anne, with his wife, they traveled all over the world to a dozen different countries. They bought property in Panama. Uh, and after about 
six years of this, John turned himself in. He was never caught. Um, what he told me was that his whole plan was to kind of use the um, release the, the liquidity in the homes and the life insurance and pensions to, you know, pay back his debts and then come back and make good. Well, as you can imagine, that's not exactly what happened. Um, he turned himself into a London police station in uh, December 2008, saying that he uh, had amnesia and that he couldn't account for events prior to the year 2000. And that ruse quickly unraveled, like within about 24 hours. Um, so he served uh, three years and three months in prison and actually ended up serving more time than him because she, she pleaded not guilty. Um, they divorced while uh, he, they were serving their sentences. Um, but, you know, the amazing thing about John is, you know, we spent, um, I spent about a week with him, uh, you know, in Seton Carew after he was released from prison. And, you know, he showed me exactly where he launched the kayak and the homes and how everything happened. Um, but he's now, he's recently remarried, um, and he actually lives in the Philippines now. So <laughs> kind of full circle. <laughs> Look, amazing stories at how they would do this. And it, I guess you have to have a lot of guts, Elizabeth, to want to do this? Yeah, a lot of guts or also, like, a lot of self-confidence <laughs> in a way, kind of like suffering from high self-esteem in the sense that you think that you'll be able to get away with it, that you're going to fool, uh, you know, law enforcement, right. fraud investigators, that you can really pull the wool over dozens and dozens of highly trained people's eyes. Um, I also think that it really comes down to desperation to go through with it. Um, and that's something that I realized in the course of researching my book is that like student loan debt isn't, isn't really that big of a motivation compared to people who find themselves millions and millions of dollars in debt or facing down, you know, pretty severe criminal charges. And you kind of start taking on some, some fight or flight response. And it was, uh, that's really one that that's flight. <laughs> is it fraud to fake your death? If you don't have any financial gain? Mm, it's a great question. So faking your death in and of itself is not illegal. So there's no law on the books called faking your own death. For Dan Galanti, Donna Walker, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonewood, Sean LaDessore, Stephanie Smith, Chris Burles, Tim Banal, George Knapp, Ian Punnett, I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.